0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. We have a 10-minute complimentary consultations for those looking for a little bit of extra help transitioning over to telehealth. Today, I have Mr. Quinn Hennock, all the way from the States. He is the, the face of Clinical Athlete, one of the three main coaches, the founder I've met him in person. He's an awesome human and a very, very smart physical therapist, so I'm keen to dive into some topics today. So, Quinn, thank you so much for making the time, mate.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about this. I appreciate the intro.
0: So, um, I also appreciate your your podcast yourself. It's given me a bit of inspiration, so I'm going to steal a little quote from there. And Would you like to tell our
1: five listeners what your story is? (laughs) Oh, you'll get the six. Don't worry, man. You just got to keep at it. Uh, yeah. So I'm currently a, a, a physiotherapist in Southern California. We call them physical therapists here in the States. Uh, my my office is inside of a weightlifting gym. And when I say weightlifting, I mean the sport of weightlifting. So the snatch and clean and jerk. Now we do train uh, just field sport and, and kind of general athletes, but my poppy, my patient population is very much active individuals and depends on how we want to define athlete. But everybody that walks through my office door, for the most part, has some type of physical activity goal that they're, they're trying to get back to. And so on the day-to-day, that's where I am. And it's a really awesome environment. And I, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Um, my original background was in strength and conditioning. And that's what I went to uh, college for, university initially, was to be a strength and conditioning coach. And I did that and just wanted to expand my knowledge and professional opportunities. And I felt like I had a bit of a gap when it came to managing injury and the complex experience of pain. And I thought physical therapy school would be the perfect bridge. And so that's when I went to, in 2010, went back to physical therapy school after working as a strength and conditioning coach for a couple of years and graduated with my DPT in 2013 and kind of been doing what I do now ever since in different facilities. Uh, athletic background. I played American football all through college and uh, have, for the last 10 years, have competed in the sport of weightlifting. And so that's also why I love the environment that my office is in because, you know, they're my people. So it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. So you had that S&C background from the start and then you expanded on that. So if, if physios out there are looking to get into the sports rehab athlete world, what would you kind of advise them in terms of the the courses or or helping them with the skills?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you certainly don't have to go and get a four-year degree in exercise science, but I will say that having that background definitely helped because at least here in the States, physical therapy school is not meant to make you a specialist. You know, I had that preconceived notion of coming into PT school, it's like, Oh, I'm going to be LeBron James's student PT for three years. And, you know, it's not like that at all. They, they train you to be a generalist and they tell you that from day one. So it's no fault of physical therapy school, but having already kind of having that, that background and having been educated in that realm and also having worked in that realm, I was able to layer on instead of having to build that knowledge base at the same time. So I think it really helped. Now, if you don't have that, you can go shadow coaches, you know, find your local uh, strength conditioning facilities or universities and see if the coaches will allow you to shadow. And there's, you know, there's some great personal trainers out there, but I wouldn't necessarily just go to any, you know, commercial gym and say, Hey, can I shadow your, your trainers? I would look at, you know, the, in the trenches, strength and conditioning professionals, who, uh, who, are, who are walking that walk on the day-to-day and see how they train their athletes, look at the programs, talk to them about how they manage injuries in that environment, and really get a feel for that space. And I think that would really help. Uh, and it would, it would be better, so much better than simply relying on physical therapy school to give you that s c background because it likely will not. So
0: there's a lot of people that are perhaps in an environment that they don't really find intrinsically motivating. If they're in that clinical environment, they want to then progress into sports rehab settings, having some kind of mentorship, internship, seeking out courses and resources to kind of bridge that gap would be, would be helpful.
1: Yeah, definitely. But I still say, I mean, now, you know, we're social distancing won't allow you to shadow, but I don't, <laughs> uh, I still think that's an important thing. Like if you on the weekends, let's say you're working, you're either a student or you're working in the field as a physio, you can go and shadow these facilities when you're not working and still make those connections. So it's not just about knowledge, but it's also, you know, what if this gym that you go and and meet with their coaches, what if they have an extra room in the back that's not really being used? And they're like, Oh, you know, we've been talking about putting a therapist back there. Like that's how a lot of my connections started was just meeting people and you just never know what opportunities are going to come up when it, when it comes to that type of stuff. So nothing beats in the trenches, getting a glimpse of it, you know, like you can watch uh, DVD of DVD. What the hell? I, how old am I? You can watch uh, online courses on strength conditioning and you can read research on strength conditioning. But if, if you don't know training an athlete over the course of time, like what that looks and feels like, you're not going to learn that from a piece of paper or through a screen. And so at least not initially. I think you've got to have that base of contextual framework of like real life. It's kind of like in physio school when you'd learn about what somebody presents like when they have a stroke and you, and you first learn on a piece of paper. So your mental model is a piece of paper. And then when you go on your clinical and you see that exact presentation, you don't even make the connection. It's like a whole nother thing to you. And then you're like, Oh wait, that's what I learned in class, you know, a month ago. I was like, Oh, that's what that looks like in a real life human in real life in their environment. So it's kind of the same with, with strength and conditioning. Uh, but yeah, you get enough time that way. Then you can, then the research makes sense. Oh, that's that paper that I read on cluster training or velocity based training. I didn't even know what the hell that was, but they were, they were, that's what they were doing in the gym when I shadowed. So if you can just make connections meet as many people as you can um yeah that would be my my number one rack.
0: awesome and that experiential learning to layer on top of the theoretical knowledge is is the way to kind of bridge that gap as well because you can know everything on paper right but then applying it to a real life athlete in their context with all the fluctuations
1: that happen exactly and it brings context to both sides too because sometimes, like you could go the other way, I think if I had to pick one or the other, it's you're in the environment, and you just you learn by doing, but at the same time, it's really nice to understand what's going on under the hood the the why or the how behind some things, or as, at least as best as we understand them, just to inform your decisions a little bit better going forward, and that's where coming back to the research and and some of the applied theory, like, oh, that makes sense, so that's why that that's why that was more likely to work. And that's why that wasn't more likely to work. And you learn about it through the literature, then you can apply more things and then you come back. So it's just kind of, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But when you're learning, in, at least in physical therapy school, my entire first year was mostly didactic. It was mostly just memorizing facts. And uh, so then it takes time to then apply those, those facts that you memorize and you don't necessarily learn the context around what they mean takes a while for that to, to happen. And if I bet I, if I took physical therapy school all over again, hell, I would get so much more out of it this time around having now with the kind of the environmental context of, of what things actually look like in the process of rehab and the ups and downs that go along with it. Maybe I'll do that one day. Just go yeah. back. Yeah. That's
0: interesting how, um, you can always you you only take away you know a certain percentage of, of a course a weekend course and then when you try it out in, in the field you can re, you can come back and reflect on what you learnt or or even mm. uh, discuss it with peers and that's why I love the community that you've built with clinical athlete and a shout out as well to your courses I took the powerlifting certification it was awesome with John Flagg. Um, and one of the things that you you teach there as well is the, the whole concept of constraints led coaching i'd be keen to to pick your brains as as to definition of what that means and, and how can it, we can apply it to clinical populations
1: yeah so cons- the constraints led approach constraints led coaching we have to take a couple steps back and say well where does that come from and there's a there's a model called the dynamical systems theory and that model has been applied to movement human movement, but that's not even where dynamical systems came from. Dynamical systems comes from uh, complex systems in meteorology and mathematics and economics where you're, where you're dealing with massive systems that have countless factors that seemingly make the outcomes random but they're not really random it's just that it's hard to account for all of the factors that could potentially affect an outcome but think about the weather system a a very complex dynamic system complex meaning there's many factors that interplay with each other and it's and they are magnified with the interaction of each other so it's not necessarily just one factor and another it's The the sum is sometimes greater than the whole, and it can work the other way. So, you have a complex system of many, many factors. So, think of weather, uh, economic systems, mathematics, the human body, uh, dynamic, nonlinear. So, we think about this dynamical systems theory and say, wow, that applies to humans as well, very much so. You are complex, dynamic system and within that so how do we apply the dynamical system to the human and in this case to human movement well there's kind of a sub model that comes out of that called a constraints led approach and think of a constraint as a boundary condition so we have all these factors and in dynamical systems we tend to bucket three different, uh, we have three different buckets of factors. We have environmental factors that are out of our control for the most part, but we just have to manage. We have individual factors, which is the the athlete or the client, their individual constraints or their individual attributes. Some of those are modifiable. Some of them are not height, non-modifiable for the most part, weight modifiable, but not easy strength, uh, power production, all of these things. Like it, you could pick a lot of individual f- factors that will have a, uh, an effect on the outcome of a movement or a training process or a rehab process. So you have environmental factors, you have individual factors, and then you have task constraints or factors. So if we just think of an example like a squat, the task is the squat, We can change that task in a myriad of ways to make it more challenging for the organism, damn near impossible for the organism by what putting more weight on than they can overcome. That's a constraint, right? Making it easy for the individual. We can change the task. We can modify it so that it looks like a squat kind of, but it's only happening on one side of the body. So now these factors don't happen in isolation because remember this is a complex dynamic system. So you always have concurrent interaction between environmental individual and task constraints. And so a constraints led approach is your purposeful manipulation of any one of these buckets in any combination in order to drive the outcome that you're looking for. And if we think about this, the, the, famous quote by the statistician, George box, who says all models are wrong, but some are useful is very much relevant here. But what's funny is we're all as coaches and clinicians, we're all practicing constraints led. Uh, we all, we're all doing a constraints led approach because we change variables. That is, that is, you're changing a constraint. You're changing a boundary condition. So whether or not you model it or, or call it constraints led approach, you are doing that. But having this mental model of these buckets of factors and saying, well, how can I, how can I manipulate that to give this person an affordance to afford them more of this individual factor that's going to allow for a movement solution to occur when maybe they didn't have that before. When you model it that way, it starts to inform your decisions a little bit better. You start to be able to understand the complexity of movement and pain and training, and you accept kind of the non-linearity. And uh, it just, it allows you to kind of sift through the noise a little bit. You say, what factors am I manipulating? Okay, that's an, that's an individual constraint. How does that affect the task? The environment is something that they're having to manage. You know, the environments, the surface, the weather, the temperature, the lighting the crowd, those types of things. Um, Pain is a constraint. So now when you're looking at this scenario through that lens, pain is just another confounding factor that you have to manage. Pain is not this separate boogeyman entity that's completely removed from the training or the rehab experience. No, it's it's an individual constraint that's embedded within the process doesn't make it any more easy to manage necessarily, but at least it doesn't make it out to be something that's any different necessarily, just kind of in, in the whole of the model. And so I'll stop there because it's really easy to, not, to make no sense whatsoever when you're talking dynamical systems and I'm by no means an expert. So it's, it's awesome. how, how much sense did that make? Yeah, it made complete sense. So it's there's, okay. it's that
0: the whole model is useful for us to just think of all the options I guess we have to help the athlete who's in the center of this is the main person. So yes, manipulating the the task I feel is a whole new area for a lot of us rehab specialists. Cause we tend to have experience in um, coaching along the lines of how do we change that person's strength or parameters, mobility, whatever that may be their functional mm-hmm. impairments as they say. So having that bird's eye view of looking at, the, the setting that we are in, in our clinical environment, how we can change that squat to look differently. So you mentioned unilateral range of motion, etc. And then, how can we, as well, uh, manipulate that athlete so their their fitness? And then knowing that the results emerge out of the complex interweb of these three factors.
1: Hopefully, they do. Yeah. So an example. I, I go back to the AC, like ACL rehab quite a bit because it's one of the few things that is, it's a little bit more predictable than a lot of other stuff. Like you get an ACL reconstruction in nine months. I have a general idea of where you should be on the average. And it's, so it's an easier scenario to talk about, but let's say you have an athlete who had an ACL reconstruction. The task is to sprint as fast as you can for 10 yards, 10 meters, and then stop. Take as little time from after you hit that 10 meter mark to come to a complete stop, to decelerate. So what does that require? So that's the task. Well, if we just think about it, let's reduce it down to the knee. When you run full speed and you have to decelerate, an external torque is being imposed on your knee. The ground reaction force, when you plant in front of you, you try to slow down. The ground reaction force is kicking back in an equal and opposite direction. It's trying to bend your knee, right? Now, let's say that person, so that's the task. Let's say that person who's coming back from ACL reconstruction, let's say they're nine months out. But they, and you've measured this, you've tested it, because a test is a constraint, is a purposeful uh, constraint constrained tasks, let's say you tested their knee extension peak torque and on their surgical leg, it was 40% weaker than on their non-surgical leg. So their ability to extend the knee, which is the quality needed to offset the external torque when we decelerate is not there. That individual characteristic is not present. So now we think, okay, that in, that's an individual constraint that we're dealing with. Do you, think, do you not think that that's going to affect the movement solution that this athlete uh, chooses? Absolutely, because they literally don't have the option to bend their knee and to overcome those external torque forces because they don't have the extension torque. They don't have that quality. So what do they do? Well, they either go slower, they don't run as fast, because that will offset the external ground reaction force, right? So they choose that strategy, which is a viable strategy. It's just not great for performance, like slower. They can lock their knee and send all of the force into the hip, which can be a very viable strategy from a performance perspective. When you lock that sucker and just plant into the ground, you can change direction hard and fast. However, if you also look at the majority of the literature that describes, very specifically describe the mechanism of an ACL tear, it generally happens on one leg with a locked knee. So that, and the problem is not that one strategy. The problem is that they don't have any other options. They don't have any movement variability. They have no choice but to go into this one specific pattern, either slow down or don't use the quad because they don't have one. So that's an example of how an individual constraint can dictate the movement solution. There's going to be something that happens. It's just a matter of if that, that thing that happens is sustainable. Now, what if we say, okay, we've measured that, we've tested it, and that's why we test to identify these things. So we tested that thing, and now we're going to focus on that specific individual constraint. I'm going to put a lot of load through that quad. I'm going to train them to be able to load it dynamically, eccentrically. Uh, we need to get peak up. And then when we get peak, we need to get rate of force and you've done all these things. You hope that they then, that the, the, they have more movement solutions at their disposal because you've at least cleaned up the individual constraint. You've at least ticked that box. It does not, however, guarantee that the the movement solution that you're looking for actually emerges on its own, but there's much more likelihood that it will because now they at least have that they have the option of even using that strategy, if that makes sense. And if, if they have that individual constraint, but they still don't use the strategy that you're looking for now, it's a coaching issue. Now you can use your words. You can use your, uh, your cues or your demonstration, but that stuff wouldn't have worked before because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered because they didn't have that quality. So that's an example that I give because it's kind of an easy one to conceptualize, but that scenario is is kind of the model that I use for most things. And then again, pain is just a, a confounder within that. And one
0: of the great things that we can do, knowing that we can manipulate the task in that scenario would be making that distance before the athlete stops longer initially. And like you mentioned, the speed changing the stride length. So there's still some other variables on totally. top of the strength gains.
1: Totally. So you, as the clinician and coach, can cha- can purposely change the task too. So you could make them run slower. But like that might not be a bad thing because maybe they're just scared to decelerate and bend their knee. But if you say purposely, you no, know, slow down. You can even actually decrease the distance because they won't be able to generate as much speed on the back end. You stop them before they can actually get up to full speed. Uh, but you're right. You can slow them down. You could, you could even say, you know, we're not going to do a run up approach. We're going to take a step, you know, bend the knee, slow it down and then kick back kind of like a dynamic lunge, but it's the same principle. It's the same. You're constraining the task now to a very specific piece of the movement. Right. And then you can build it from there. So you know, some coaches would say, that's all you need. You don't need to do the specific strengthening for that area. Uh, I think you don't need to do anything, but, you know, die. But you, I think if you want to optimize the scenario uh, as best you can, you work on the individual constraint, you work on the individual's ability to coordinate the task, and then you allow those, hopefully, to, like you said, kind of emerge into a, a viable movement strategy over time.
0: Comprehensive capacity. So why not do both if you have totally. the facilities and the, the time and you know, there's, there's no rush, I guess, to get the athlete back onto the pitch as soon as possible.
1: You know, even if there is, you can still, I, I, professional athletes are really good at just doing the task And they're really good at shielding stress away from certain areas. And I've seen many professional athletes who test very poorly when it's a very constrained specific task and they get away with it just fine. But why not try to clean that up? If there's no, you know, there's, there's an opportunity cost to, to most things, you know, it's time if nothing else. But even if they're in season, there's things that isometrics, you know, not just for for pain analogies, isometrics allow you to produce a lot of force in a very specific angle, you know, the way that you want, wherever you want. Uh, There's usually something that can be trained, even if you're in a quote unquote rush, but yeah, you're right. I mean, in a scenario where you're not constrained by a timeline, there's really no reason not to tick off the box of the individual constraint like that. Just first principle biomotor capability. And then a lot of times what you'll see is the coordination pattern will clean up on its own because now they have the resources.
0: Awesome. There's a, there's a I've heard a few um, perhaps misconceptions or, or maybe it's just another arm to, to this type of, of coaching where there's the idea that we don't have to over cue verbally as much as we thought we might need to. And then there's along the lines of the extremist views, you know, swinging the pendulum from one side to the other. There's the concept of we never have to cue. It's just let the athlete do whatever they they want. It will just emerge. Um, So where, where where's that point say in a high load activity where if you see something that could be cleaned up with, with a verbal cue or even a constraints cue, where's your kind of
1: line? It's a good question. And it's, I do, I think, you see the pendulum swing, but a lot of times the people that are arguing the two sides are also working with with a different population. I think in powerlifting and weightlifting, this is my opinion, that verbal cueing has more of a place because the tasks are predictable and the sport is very predictable. And it's they're not really having to manage a dynamic system and environment. Like You know what you're doing. There's nobody that's going to come out and take your legs out while you're doing a snatch or a back squat. Now having said that, now, and then the other side is the, when the pendulum swings to sport coach and they say, oh no, they're not listening to verbal cues on the field, they're just reacting. So what we need to do is set up the environment, set up the, the task so that they just, their solutions emerge. But you can manipulate the constraints of the task, like let's say in soccer, small sided games. So you shorten up the field, you uh, reduce the number of players, but it's a tighter space. And so now you have to react differently. So let's say you're trying to work on uh, evading defenders consistently over and over and over and over, where if you're practicing on a, a full-size field, you might not get as many opportunities just because in, uh, you know, in football, half the time people are just walking because they're so tired. I'm just kidding guys. That was a shot. I'm American. Uh, so, but in a, in a uh, small sided game, you're, you know, the, the field's smaller. And so you're going to be interacting with the defender almost constantly. So that's a way that you can, now that's no queuing. Now it's a way you can constrain the environment now where the athlete has to learn how to manage defenders over and over and over and over and over. And the thought is that the strategies that didn't work are just going to be discarded. And the strategies that do work, the athlete will absorb those naturally and, and those will become their automatic. But I, I do think there's room for both. And sometimes just sometimes just telling the athlete what you're looking for, and they just do it is a whole hell of a lot easier than trying to come become creative, like overthink, setting up the environment, especially in the, in the weight room. Um, with that said, if your goal is power, or, or uh, you know, power is a nebulous term unless we define it, but let's just say force production there's enough evidence. To, to speak on the difference between an internal and external cue or an internal cue and we'll define those might reduce power output because you get the athlete thinking too much. And so there is, there is too much when it comes to verbal cueing. I just don't have, I don't know where that line is. And so if we, an external cue is you're um, you're attuning the athlete towards the environment. So let's say you want them to stand up really fast out of the squat You would say something like, push the floor away as fast as you can. Uh, Or you would say, I want you to hit your head to the ceiling. I want you to get the top of your head to the ceiling as fast as you can. You're attuning them to the environment. So the ceiling is the environment or the floor is the environment. As opposed to, I want you to contract your quads really hard and fast. Well, now they're attuned internally, an internal cue. And what the research generally shows is that biomotor capacities, outputs are generally lower, less, when with the use of internal queue. you end up overthinking yourself out of performing. With that said, there's also probably a limit to the number of cues that you should use, whether they're internal or external. And because if you use external cues, but you give somebody like five of them at any one time, you're probably gonna have the same kind of paralysis by analysis overload that you would if you were using an internal cue. Um, what if you're post-op and you literally want them to be able to contract their quad? It's, you have this post-op inhibition and their quad is just mush. And you're like right there, contract that muscle. Are you doing them a long-term disservice by saying the word quad? No, probably not. So, <laughs> uh, I, I do fall somewhere in the middle, but there's definitely a thing as far as over cueing, especially verbally, uh, cause language is what gets our brain going in kind of an analytic way and said, if we can, we can overdo that real quick. And so I do like to use task to do the teaching as much as possible. And we call that intrinsic feedback, not to be confused with an internal cue. There's intrinsic feedback and there's augmented feedback. Intrinsic feedback means the task is doing the teaching. You're intrinsically learning from the task itself. An augmented feedback would be more of what we think about as uh, verbally cueing, kind of demonstrating explicitly. So an external cues and internal cues all fall into the bucket of augmented feedback. That's the coach augmenting the process with their input. In an intrinsic feedback scenario, we manipulate the task, so a small sided game, or let's say in powerlifting. We want the athlete to so when they when they do a back squat, they tend to kind of make it a squat morning where they dip their torso forward, it makes it a lot harder to leverage and use their legs. And so, okay, how do I fix that? Do I say keep your chest up? Well, that's not working, or keep your hips under you. They don't know what I mean. What if we do a pin squat where the bar is set at a dead stop really low, and now they have to get their body underneath it? If you've ever tried to good morning. A pin squat off the rack, it's really hard because you're not using your legs at all, you're using your back. And so they will learn how to get their legs underneath the bar to take advantage of leverage and biomechanics and actually drive the bar off the pins with their legs. And you could say, okay, now the pin squat is providing an intrinsic feedback. That's the pattern that I want you to perform when we're doing the actual back squat. The variation, the way that we constrained the task is what was the teacher if that makes sense. So if, if at all possible, I try to use intrinsic feedback. If I then have to revert to, uh, I'm sorry. No, if I then have to revert to augmented feedback, I try to go towards the more external queuing route. Uh, so it's kind of this like little coaching funnel.
0: Awesome. And there was also, uh, really great um reframe of certain accessory motions that that was um in in that course in the powerlifting certification with the position specific drills versus i've heard um like rehab corrective postural drills so what was your reason for for calling it a position specific positional drill
1: because That's pretty much what it is. My thought, so like prehab, it's like you said, we hear all these terms, corrective. Well, what are you correcting? It's just, there's just like umbrella term of, Oh, it's a corrective exercise. Well, what does that mean? I I think that we stopped actually defining what it's actually correcting. And then we just started putting all these exercises into the family of corrective exercises, almost just like as a generic family of movements and we can name them off, you know, planks and bird dogs and all this stuff. But what I, the way that I look at a movement, my lens is what is this, what is the movement providing? Is it providing some type of physiological stress that's going to elicit an adaptation? That's, so that's one box to tick off. And that's obviously not as easy as a yes or a no, but I think in certain contexts, we can say that it's skewed more likely one way or another. This exercise is stressful enough to perturb homeostasis, to elicit an, some type of adaptive response from a physiological standpoint, like a, a histological standpoint, uh, t- a tissue remodeling standpoint, those types of things, cardiovascular system that like that, endocrine, or is it... Uh, Is it a drill that's constraining a a specific task to a less complex coordination pattern? And it can help to teach the athlete kind of part practice. Like when we said um, the deceleration drill, instead of going from a full sprint, we're just going to do a couple steps. Just reteach you how to sink into that knee a little bit. Now, that's not stressful enough to create a strength adaptation but it's, you're, it's an action perception coupling. You're, you're teaching the athlete a, a specific coordination pattern. You're teaching them a position. And so that's kind of box two. What is this drill or exercise doing for me? Box number three is, is this movement creating some type of graded exposure? Is this an entry point movement? So for example, uh, post-op, hip reconstruction. So let's say somebody had part of their acetabulum shaved off and, or their femoral head kind of reshaped. Squatting is going to be something that we reintroduce at some point in the rehab, but like what type of squatting? Am I just going to start by putting a bar on their back or no, maybe I'll start with a goblet squat as their first ever squat. Well, that's kind of stressful too. If you've ever rehabbed one of these athletes, they don't tolerate hip flexion very well. So it's, what's the next level down? What's the next level down? Okay, well what about a supine feet on the wall squat where they're just laying on their back with their feet on the wall in a position that somewhat mimics their squat stance. They, what can they do? They can start to inch their way closer to the wall or centimeter their way closer to the wall. Closer and closer, grading exposure to that deep hip flexion position that they haven't been in for a while. Where could we go from there? Well, we could go to quadruped squatting, or we're just rocking back and forth, manipulating pelvic angle. Because if you go like uh, the old poop dog squat, as I like to call it, if you do a real hard posterior pelvic tilt, it clears a little bit of space. So you can rock back and then you can start to reverse that curve so you can not only moving femur on pelvis, but you're moving pelvis on femur, just exposing those tissues back to that essentially impinged position, because that's what a squat is. You are purposely impinging your joint. Impingement just means that you're approximating the tissues. And that tends to be a position that's provocative for people coming off of that type of surgery. And so we grade the exposure with position drills like that. Is it creating some type of physiological effect? Eh, Maybe in that case, it's remodeling tissues, but eh, I don't know. It's not a lot of load. Is it a positional? Is it teaching them a new position? Well, maybe it's like reintroducing somebody who was a strong squatter before, but just kind of shaking the rust off. But what that is doing in that scenario, it's a great exposure technique. So we can at least tick that box off. But I'm looking at one of those three boxes. And if an exercise or a drill is not doing one of those three things, I have to really, really question its utility what it's providing me in the program. So you, I mentioned a knee extension for our, our uh, post-op ACL athlete. You might ask, well, what the hell is a knee extension doing? Well, to, done with sufficient intensity and effort, it's providing a physiological effect to that, to that knee extensor mechanism. It's, it's providing you a biomotor adaptation of improved force production. It's also providing you a tolerance aspect too. You're increasing the force to which that knee can now tolerate absorbing and overcoming. So it's ticking boxes off. It's not teaching you a pattern that, I mean, they know how to flex and extend their knee, just kind of like, like a door hinge. But so you ask yourself, like, what is this exercise providing me? Hey, a bird dog? Hmm, let me see. Well, I had somebody, I, I'm using this example because I actually prescribed bird dogs like a month ago. It was the first time in like, five, I don't know, five years. But somebody who had a traumatic spinal fracture, lifting weights, so doing a snatch. Snatch landed on his back. He fell on his butt. Snatch landed on the back of his head. Compression fracture. So his lower back was sandwiched between the ground and the bar. Uh, L45 compression fracture. Some nerve damage, but he's going to be fine. Like he's lifting again. But like a sig- significant injury. He was in a back brace uh, for like four months. So he was very, very, very flexion intolerant. And I said, okay, I just, we just want to reintroduce spinal range of motion. Like he's been locked in this brace for four months. Holy hell. So, uh, cap, camel, you know, quadrupedge is flexion extension. What is that doing? It's grading exposure back to segmental spinal movement. So he doesn't feel like he's living in a brace. And then the bird dog with a very specific cue of, it wasn't the extension. It wasn't reaching the arm and the leg out. That was really my aim. It was bringing them in and eventually trying to touch the elbow to the knee underneath him. He could do it on one side. He couldn't even come close on the other side. And that was actually also the side that he was having ridiculous symptoms. So the bird dog was actually a little bit of an outcome measure for us. Like knowing that when he gets to the point where he can touch his knee to his elbow, we've probably regained a decent amount of range of motion. So in that sense, a bird dog, wasn't this like multifidus activation exercise. It was great exposure to a particular range of motion that we were sensitized to. And those are those quote unquote tier three exercises that John and I talk about where for a healthy athlete or a more able bodied athlete, those are going to be adjunct if included in the program at all. And most of the program is going to be the specific movements or variations thereof that provide some type of physiological effect or teach a complex coordination pattern like the pin squat. Um, but in a, in a extreme rehab scenario that the concentration of that tier one, tier two, tier three might be flipped on its head. And now most of our rehab comprises of those tier three exercises because their tolerance is so low as their tolerance increases. And as their capacity increases, those percentages start to be skewed, you know, in the other direction, but so to to answer your question with that, you could call them correctives, you can call them whatever the hell you want. Um, But it's, it's kind of like, ultimately, what's the goal that you're after? Awesome. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And and I love the, the top down approach. And that top depends on the athlete's current capacity and capability. So obviously, in an acute um, injury that they'd, they'd be starting at the lower end of that funnel if you would call it a funnel. Sure. Yeah. And then they gradually increase it. But if there's someone that has a you know uh, less so of a acute injury or trauma, atraumatic, they we can start at that top level. And I feel like a lot of us perhaps are focusing on that bottom level for various reasons.
1: Oh yeah, I agree with that. We we stay there too long. And I think this is where we get tricked as athletes and clinicians by novelty. And what I mean by that is let's say you have an athlete who can, who can back squat or deadlift, like 250 kilos, like they're strong or something like that, but they have hip pain when they do it. And you introduce some type of body weight only glute bridge, which is a fine exercise, by the way. You know, what's a glute bridge? Well, you're just like, Constrain the task and you're forcing the glute to, you know, create an extension torque and overcome gravity, blah, blah, blah. So, like, you're just loading. It's just an exercise. But the amount of stress that that exercise can induce is much lower than what that athlete is actually capable of. But what happens when that athlete does their glute bridge for the first time in the clinic, they go to, like, semi-close to failure and they get that area to burn up pretty good – and they stand up and they're like, oh, damn, my hip feels nice after that. And they're like, you know what? That's what I've been missing, a damn glute bridge. And they, and they fall in love with the glute bridge. And what happens, that novelty wears off. Two or three weeks later, that glute bridge stops having that analgesic effect because we just desensitized to it. And then what do you do? You go looking for the next magic trick. And it's not that there was anything wrong with the glute bridge. It was just that it was novel. It was something different. And so what do they do instead? Or they find an ab exercise or like a sideline glute bridge or whatever. And they all have this like short-term novel effect. And those exercises, I but that effect, it's not that that's bad. I actually use that. Like I sometimes throw those exercises in for that exact reason, knowing that that novelty is going to wear off. But I want to also make sure that they know – Doing that exercise and you standing up and feeling better doesn't mean that that was the ticket and that you lacked some quality that that exercise is now giving you because that's not the case either, especially in that scenario where the guy's super, you know, he's really strong already. So we let these exercises trick us because usually we're not doing all of them all the time. So we find one on YouTube and we just do, or Instagram and we just do it and it feels different. And we kind of forget about the other feelings that we have all over our body. And we're like, Oh, I like that. You know, it's going to make that part of my routine. And we just layer we, over time, we layer on like 50 of those things and our warm up becomes an hour long. So just my thought with that is like what I've shifted on is truly what is this thing providing and not, um, taking advantage of that kind of analgesic effect, but also understanding its limitations and, and the, kind of the reality of the situation. And more importantly, educating the athlete on that specific thing too.
0: Love it. And you mentioned YouTube and Instagram where we can get all, a lot of these ideas and oh, yeah. you've, you're, you're definitely known for the mobility myths videos on juggernaut training systems, if I recall correctly. And they, they were really awesome and um, would have question a few uh, people for the first time and a few practices for the first time. So if you were to do some mobility myth videos for 2020, what would you, or would you update any of the, of the ones that you did back all those years ago?
1: That's a good question. So I did foam rolling and my general opinion is pretty similar. You know, in regards to like what foam rolling does, it's likely just, it's what we just talked about. It's a novel stimulus, it's a strong sensory stimulus. It's, it's one of those uh, diffuse noxious inhibitory control mechanisms where pain overrides pain. <laughs> Some people like that, I happen to hate it. I always hated it, even when I did foam rolling and thought I was doing something, I absolutely hated it. Back then, this was about three or four years ago that I made those videos with Juggernaut, I think I was a little bit more militant on foam rolling, to be completely honest. And I think now I have less energy trying to convince people of my bias because I'm annoyed by foam rolling and I'm annoyed by the narratives around it. But then I try to push that on other people and it's exhausting. So like, I don't actually care if people foam roll. Just make sure you're doing these things and you know we outline those. So it's not like foam rolling is bad or it's doing something. It's only bad if it's an opportunity cost where you're spending time doing that thing when you could be doing these things that are actually going to give you some type of an effect or it's going to teach you a movement pattern or something like that, or tick one of our other three boxes off. So, and then if, you, if you're taking all those boxes now, nah, you want to throw foam rolling in whenever you want to throw it in, I don't really care. So I think I've changed in that respect, but I haven't really changed on the mechanisms of what it's providing and what it's not. Cause I don't think the evidence has changed. There's been more evidence on foam rolling and it's still kind of the same. Yeah. You know, short-term range of motion changes and, But so can just doing more of the movement. And that's kind of what I espouse then. And and so I, I would say just less militant, but making sure people are well aware of like what it's not providing. And I would say the same with the stretching video that I did was one of the myths as well. Um, again, I'm I'm less apt to try to convince somebody of my bias and what I want them to think about a certain thing, and just making sure that there's no opportunity costs that are that are keeping us from attaining certain qualities just because of a time thing. Um, so, so that's more, yeah. So just more of a mental shift there. And it's honestly, that's been easier on my emotions. It's hard to try to convince people of your own bias, right? Especially when they're uh, when they're like negative, angry bias, no, don't foam roll. It's stupid uh, it's, you know, it's, just not the way I want to operate. It's, it's the way I used to operate. There was a time there where it was just like, rah, death to all. Now I still, if I could press a button right now and all the foam rollers in the entire world would just disappear, I would absolutely do it. But because I can't, <laughs> but like, so back then I was looking for that button, you know what I mean? But now I'm not looking for it anymore. Um, the other one was, uh, scapular winging and the video, you know, scapular winging is a thing. It's a thing in, in, it's a clinical case. If somebody has a long thoracic nerve injury, a scapular wing, that thing's flying all over the place and like their, their arm function isn't as good because your scapula is your anchor. You know, that's what anchors your shoulder to your, to your thorax. So you can, you know, have a functional shoulder, but the athlete, but, but a lot of times when we think scapular wing, we're just looking at somebody who's relatively healthy with no nerve injury and it's like their shoulder blade just kind of looks weird. And then we say, oh, you have scapular wing it's so, it's so hard to analyze that. If you, the reliability is terrible. If you're looking for at somebody from behind and their shirts off and you see both of their shoulder blades and you have them raise their arms over their head and you have 10 different therapists tell you what they see, you're going to get like seven different opinions and, and somebody's going to say normal. No, it's a, it's the left one. No, it's the right one. And then you try to have them guess, oh, which shoulder do you think is the painful one? And they'll be it'll be a 50-50 mix, you know. So it's just it's so unreliable. How can we actually measure and test it? And so that was that was basically my message in the video, which again I think was is pretty consistent with what I think now. Um so and then the other one, there was another one that was butt wink, you know, the, the posterior tilt at the bottom of the squat. Um, I think now in general, not just with the concept of butt wink, but in general, I'm more apt to acknowledge, to not take such a hard stance and acknowledge evidence on the other side if there is some. So like, I'll take, I'll actually take a step back and say static stretching. So I want to say that static stretching is a hundred percent sensory, but I don't actually think that's true. There's, a, there's enough evidence that if you hold a stretch long enough, you can make changes in the muscle-tendon junction and the fascicles. The question of, well, is that what we want? Is a different question. The question of does stretching do something more histi- histological to the tissues than just sensory input? And I think the answer is yes. I don't want it to be yes, but I think I'm much, I think I acknowledge things a lot better um, in regards to the butt wink if somebody has a flexion intolerance and their back hurts at the bottom of a squat, I might try to have them not tuck their tailbone so much or I'll, I'll reduce their range of motion. Uh, I still feel that the, a posterior pelvic tilt is an inherent function of hip flexion. It's a coupled motion. The same as lumbar extension and hip extension is a coupled motion for a sprinter. As they, as they reach back and extend through that hip. Uh, but I'll, that's not to say that I, that I won't try to have somebody come out of lumbar flexion if they're sensitized to it. Whereas in the past, I may have taken the movement optimist route to quote Greg Lehman, maybe too far, and said, well, I don't like the people who demonize lumbar flexion, So I'm going to go so far the other way to say it doesn't matter and nothing matters and you can just, you know, poop dog all your squats. So now there's probably a middle ground there, especially from a performance standpoint. So when it comes to those videos and I actually don't think in the videos, I was taking such a hard stance, but I know that I have in the past. And uh, I think I'm just a little bit more kind of in the middle, but still, still taking the stance, the same general stance, but a little bit more nuanced and acknowledging the other side of things a little bit more. As far as new, I think the novelty thing is big. If I could make a mobility myths video of don't be uh, don't get fooled by, by your corrective exercise or something like that. It, it would be the exact message that we just talked about. The exercise itself is not bad. What box does it tick off? Just don't be fooled by the novelty. Don't be fooled by that first instance where you get up and you're like, Oh, damn that feels nice and it's like a drug. And then what happens when you take the drug for the first time, you never get that same high again and you have to take more and more and more of it. And it has less and less and less of an effect. And that's kind of how I see exercise induced analgesia. And, uh, you know, I'm going now, but the isometrics. So I think isometrics, it's not really mobility myth, but the literature that came out in 2015 with Ebony Rio and that, that crew in regards to knee extension isometrics being a pain analgesic for patellar tendinopathy, that really took off. And there were three or four studies that followed that from that same team and from different teams looking at, yeah, isometrics do have an analgesic effect, but so do isotonics. And there's not really that big of a difference. And then they started with these long duration holds like 30 to 45 seconds And then they match that with 10 second holes. And it was like, oh, there's no difference. And then it started to become out of favor where because it stopped being new and trendy, it was like, ah, they're just isometrics. You know, you can get pain analgesic with anything. But that put isometrics in a box that they're only good for analgesic uh, means, but they're not. There's an awesome 2019 review by Dustin Aranchek, who is essentially... A systematic review on the effects of isometrics from a performance standpoint, like strength, hypertrophy, rate of force development. And isometrics are a real useful form of load and and, um, constraining force into an organism, imparting load into an organism. You can do it in the exact angle that you want to mimic whatever task you want it to mimic or to load and stress whatever tissue that you want to target in a very con- applied way. The athlete is in charge so they can modulate the force. You can do a slow ramp up to a peak. You can do as f- hard and fast as you can afraid of force development. It's a really useful and dynamic way to load and, and to program. And it doesn't create that much fatigue either because you're not stretching and contracting the muscles. You're not going to have that muscular damage and let much less soreness so it's that too that like isometrics because of that tendinopathy literature all of a sudden got championed as the pain panacea and then when that when people came down to earth on that it was all well, isometrics don't do shit and so I think those two things would be I don't think the isometrics ones would be as popular but um, those are two things that I think I would I would speak on a little bit more um, but otherwise I'm pretty. I think those videos are still pretty accurate. And I actually don't like saying that because they're almost four years old at this point. And I want to be like, no, I've changed my stance, but I think I'm just more nuanced. But ultimately I just don't think the literature has changed that much on those topics. So like, why would I change that much? You know, I'm just more mature now.
0: Yeah. Less, um, less telling people what to think and, and more, more nuanced. Yes. Now.
1: Yeah.
0: I already it's have amazing.
1: that tendency. It's really hard in the clinic to not do that too. Cause you think you have this aura of like, well, I'm the clinician. You're like, you're here to see me. Well, what, what do you think about form rolling? Ah, form rolling is shit. It's annoying. It annoys me. So I'm going to make it annoy you. I want it to annoy you. And if it doesn't annoy you, then you annoy me. And I think, <laughs> I think we fall into that trap sometimes. Uh, it's much easier to say, you know what? You're you can do whatever you want on your time. Um, here's what it's doing, or here's what it probably doesn't do. So just don't fall into that trap. But if you want to throw it in as a nighttime routine, you want to throw it in between exercises, just know that if you're doing it for half an hour before you train, you know, that's time taken away from things that are really going to give you the effect that we're looking for, like this long-term part of this long-term process. And like, when you frame it like that, most people are like, ah, yeah, you're right. And I honestly find that they start trimming the fat themselves over time. Anyway, like they start trimming down their warmest. Hey, you know what? I just didn't even foam roll today and it felt totally fine. Like, Hey, there you go. It might've been three or four weeks in, but I saved myself a headache. It's not like, you know, they didn't long-term damage from foam rolling for those three or four weeks. So I find that it's kind of self-organizes on its own anyway. When people learn the skill of training, they start to trim the fat on the stuff that just doesn't really do anything long-term.
0: Yeah, and it, would there be some cases where you've seen athletes go along the novelty cycle, and you know they have the shiny object syndrome, post hoc fallacies everywhere, and they're just yeah. looking? And as you mentioned, their warm up ends up being longer than their workout. At that yeah. stage, you, what's your approach when you you come across working with an athlete?
1: It's a good question because you, what you want to do is you want to just flip their world upside down and take it all out. Like you want to just rip the bandit off, right? And that's probably like if they weren't a human with a psychological attachment to their current stuff, then, yeah, you could just do that. But people don't like that, and they don't like when you flip their world upside down, and behavior change is hard. And so I, I like to just kind of nudge people. I say like I take an inventory and I say okay how do you feel about your warm up right now first of all cuz what if they like it for, like really I mean what if the person has all day to train it's not affecting their livelihood or whatever they like warming up for an hour and their training is going fantastic and their rehab's going fantastic I mean in the past I probably would have touched it cuz it annoyed me but now I don't but I might ask well, what do you think about your warm up or how long is your warm-up right now? Because I have them list everything they do. I want, I want to know that. And I say, Oh, it's you know it's getting long, but I just feel like I can't, I feel like I can't get into my training without it. And I say, okay, what if we start throwing some of these movements in between your warm-up sets of your lifts? So now here, what am I doing? I'm not taking away the movement completely. That's coming, but it's gonna come because they're gonna figure it out on their own. But what I'm doing is I'm redistributing. Redistributing. There you go. There's a better uh, inflection. <laughs> so, time, we're a little bit uh, more time efficient. And it's not going to affect their top sets because I said put it in between their warm up. So, let's say they like to foam roll and they like to do like a banded glutes bridge uh, to warm up their hips before squatting. But they do a bunch of other stuff too. I'll say, okay, let's do the foam roll, your quads and glutes. 20 seconds do your banded glute bridge you know however many reps you want 5 to 8 reps in between your warm up sets for squats and that means empty barbell do your thing empty bar do your thing one you know 60 kilos whatever your ramp up set do 3 or 4 rounds it doesn't lose any time cuz you were going to just fuck around in between your warm up sets anyway sorry
0: Swearing okay. is absolutely allowed. This is an Okay, option. so I should have asked that in the beginning.
1: I've been, I've been really holding it in because I wasn't <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, so they're just going to be messing around anyway. So you, you can do your stuff there. And what you find is that they can get all that work in. It actually has a better effect. Because we talk about novelty, right? When you stand up with those short-term exercises, you feel really good. That doesn't last very long. That not, you know, If you have a 30-minute warm-up of all that stuff, you probably – have lost that analgesic effect from the first five or 10 minutes of what you did have to just do it again. It's just endless cycle of nothing but your low level tier three exercises. So what is putting those things in very close proximity to your actual movement? Well, you might actually now be able to use that analgesic effect. Oops, hit my mic into the movement now. So it's like, it's still unnecessary probably and excessive, but at least it even makes more, it's more plausible at this point. You know what I mean? And so you just start like, you don't flip the world, you're still doing your stuff. It's actually better this way. It takes less time. And then what I find over time is that they just start naturally trimming some of that stuff off without me even having to say it. And, and also if they never do, I have to appraise whether that matters or not. But yeah, so that's kind of how I do it. I, I try not to flip people's worlds upside down, but I do see like, how can we change this? Um, and then... You know, we can, what I find is that people will kind of go through phases where they train with no extra, they're like me because I was the person who had an hour warm up, and now I'm the person who puts the shoes on and just moves with the bar until I feel like things quote unquote click. And I let that time be as long as it needs or as short as it needs. And I just kind of let it happen naturally. So I'm definitely on the other end of the spectrum now. But what I find is that people flip. So they'll be like that for a period of time and there's periods of time where they just feel more beat up and they just want to add some of that stuff back in. But now we have a way to implement it probably more uh, effectively. And then that doesn't, that phase doesn't last forever. And then we, they stop doing that stuff. And I'm just kind of letting that side of things ebb and flow naturally instead of trying to strong arm it. If that makes sense.
0: Definitely trying to nudge them into it gradually with that behavior change you probably don't even need to go the the verbal route and explain all the reasons why you think the way you do and what the evidence says because they might send them a powerpoint
1: like they don't give a shit yeah exactly (laughs) yeah
0: yeah and one of the things then so you and i really love that we can criticize some of these exercises and because we hear a lot of criticisms of the whole passive versus active but we don't really Mm -hmm. criticize on on the active and we now we can have some kind of classification system as to what is bang for buck um, you know the most time efficient for athletes for their performance for what they really want to get out of their training now if we were to go down the 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 passive versus active conversation when it comes to these interventions yeah what's what's your stance when it comes to what is what is most valuable for the athlete in front of you obviously with all the nuance now that you know.
1: Are you asking me about manual therapy? Yes. Um, But not only
0: manual therapy. So we're (laughs) looking at just to be clear, like the there's so we mentioned foam rolling, carragon, needles, the whole
1: thing. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. You know, first of all, I pref I always preface this with saying that I am by no means the arbiter of anything good or the uh, I, I am not the gatekeeper of what "quote unquote" good physical therapy is. All I'm speaking from is what I do, so I want that to be super clear. And I'm probably wrong, but I went into PT school as a strength and conditioning coach. I, t- I mentioned that earlier because I had that background. I wanted something new, and so I actually went into PT school wanting to be a manual therapy guru. And I don't say that word lightly. I mean my vision was people lining up outside of my door so that these magic hands could fix them. And I'm not kidding. I mean, it was that, uh, it was that strong of a desire because I had, I felt like I had that strength and conditioning background, man. I wanted, if I, if I had that knowledge plus magic hands, I mean, hell, you know, what else do you need? But when I started to realize is that I wasn't, first of all, I wasn't feeling what the professor's, you know, you feel that? Oh, yeah, you'll feel it. You just need more reps. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't clicking. And I was starting to become disenchanted with the ritualistic nature of manual therapy. And I was starting to become disenchanted with the fact that every day was like we were learning some new system named after some guy in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And it was like, well, we're not even learning the system. We're just learning like, well, here's what they do. And here's how they put their hands. And this what they, these are the spots that that's how they call trigger points this name and they call them this name and they stretch from origin to insertion and they stretch from insertion to origin. So it's just like, what is happening? It's like, what is all this based on other than opinion, other than the person who just thought it up? And honestly, that was the shift for me. Cause I actually, my research background was in, was in performance and I didn't even really care about like, I just assumed physical therapy school was teaching me the most up-to-date you know, current literature because I was paying a you know, shit ton of money. So it's like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't I just assume that? But I started to realize what some of these ideas were based on and I, so I started to question that idea. And then suddenly I started saying, okay, well, what does this stuff actually do? Let's forget the gurus for a second. So I was starting to shift away from that mindset. Let's, what's the mechanism? So I know what exercise does, or you know, at least to have a better idea of the adaptations that happen what systems are affected? Well, how does that apply now to manual therapy or to any other, you know, passive modality, like you said, but manual was the big one for me. And I was, I was just coming with, you know, I was coming up with more questions than answers. I was, the sand was just running right through my hands and I was trying to find something. And it ended up being this more sensory based thing. When, when it, when it, when we got down to the brass tacks of it. Now, If you press hard enough and you press long enough, it's like stretching. Like, yes, you can create some type of change. I mean, hell, a bullet is passive and a bullet creates tissue change. So let's not say that that passive tissue work, however you want to define that won't create a change. It's just that the way that we usually apply it is not how that change is created. And the change that occurs, is that even what we want? So, that's, these are the questions that I was dealing with. And so then now I started to just fall back on my haunches and say, well, actually it's what I had coming in here to begin with. It's exercise and it's now I've actually started to become better at communicating with patients because I think that was the big thing that physical therapy school gave me. It was that, like clinical experience of dealing with an actual human who's having problems. Whereas my past experience dealing with humans was with high performance or very active, healthy individuals so different problems they were just complaining about not hitting a PR that day, you know, um, versus having a spinal cord injury and your life is turned upside down. It's different. It puts, it puts things in perspective. And at minimum PT school did that for me. So when it, when it came to that, that's, it was kind of like halfway through PT school where I started to question the mechanisms and started to say, well, when will I do these things and I'll practice the techniques I I still don't really have any clinical experience. I don't really know how this is relevant. Maybe it is relevant. So I'm just going to keep doing them, keep practicing. But then when I started practicing, I'm like looking at the clock and I'm saying, We've spent 15 minutes of me just rubbing on you. And like, we have so many things that we have to get to. We got to talk about your exercise. We got to talk about what we need to uh, talk to your coach. And I have to answer your questions and like, I've to talk to your parents. If you're a kid and stuff like that, and I'm like, we're wasting so much time on something that I don't know is having any type of an effect other than a non-specific novel effect that I can get with exercise and, and communication. So it was that second half of my physical therapy school career and kind of the first year of clinical practice where I, I really just, Abandoned most manual therapy in its traditional sense almost entirely because of an opportunity cost aspect. Not because I don't think it doesn't do anything, I think it has an effect. I just think that effect is not something that's specific to the technique. And I think it's something that I can get in other ways that also provide some type of other effect that's maybe been more efficacious instead of just effective at at pain modulation. And when it comes to all the other stuff, I, I lump it pretty much all in the same bucket. Now, one can make the argument that something like a foam roller, if they just want that piece of it, I'll pick foam roller over manual for me because a foam roller is something they can do on their time and there's not as much of an opportunity cost dry needling on the other hand, first of all, it's, I can't do it in California. It's not within our scope. So let's just say, Oh, sorry, I can't do it. And I also just don't have an ultrasound machine. So I say, Oh, sorry, don't have that. But you know, dry needling as a clinician, I have to invest a lot of money to learn that a lot of hours. So that, that kind of sunk cost fallacy, like that investment. As a clinician, you're damn right. I'm going to be using that puppy if somebody walks in my door. You know how much money I spent to get certified in dry needling, and so it, it like it, it starts to skew your treatment now, and your decision making. Again, for what? For a for a novel sensory effect, like a strong one at that, and oh hell, you know, like a ritualistic effect of like sticking a needle in somebody, especially they having a twitch on them. Like if you're a patient and you don't really know what's going on, you're like, whoa, they're doing something like this is a treatment, you know? So you, you have that. Uh, but I just don't know. I just can't right now justify spending, investing the time into, into doing that. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with that whole piece. And I have many colleagues who I highly respect that do use those modalities and in varying to varying degrees in their practice. And you know, we talk about these things and I don't, there's nothing like they know me and I know them and it's all these things. It's, it's, It's the conversations that are tough for me to have when it's this line of, no, you just don't understand because you haven't, you haven't, you don't have the skills and you haven't trained under my mentor as a manual therapist, or you don't do your techniques the way I do them. Like these very, guru, literally the, the person that I wanted to be for a short period of time are the people that I have the hardest time having these conversations with. It's the ones that say, yeah, you know, I do manual therapy because, uh, the patient requests it. They really like it. I, they know that it's, it's just kind of a feel good thing, but I don't mind it. It's just a small piece of my time. I was, I was trained under a, uh, you know, a FAMPT. Fellowship manual therapist. So I have these skills. I'm comfortable doing it. And you know, we also do exercise and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's fine it's, it's whatever. I can still make the argument that that's still time that I could be doing something else but like I think that's probably what we call the intellectual stalemate Where you just come to the base level of the argument and you're just going to okay, you know, we're just gonna agree to disagree here like this is pretty much where it's gonna be gridlock, but um Yeah, so that's kind of where I am I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, it does. It's um save the most controversial topic for last, I think. And it's it's really cool that we can we can agree to disagree and we all have our own thought processes going to that, our own experiences. So it's great to hear yeah. your background story and what led you to that decision and why you think that.
1: And I'm not you no, know, definitely um not blind to the fact that like obviously my my decisions are biased like you could say that, okay, I choose not to perform manual therapy because on average, the literature would suggest that it doesn't do any more than blah, blah, blah. But I was also disenchanted because I came into it with such gusto. Like if I would've came into PT school just saying, oh, manual therapy is cool. Like I'll learn a little bit about it. Like I might actually do it more now, but I was so coming into it full speed and I was so let down and so disappointed that I couldn't just mold somebody like clay. Then I, I just like fell off that cliff and I was like, ah, fuck that. You know, manual therapy doesn't do shit. And now here I am like still pretty much practicing like that, but with a a more open nuanced mindset of, of it. But uh, yeah, it all, it's like we all have our individual bias and that's why having conversations with colleagues and individuals is great, but you just kind of like take it for what it is, you know, and you take what I just said for what it is too.
0: Awesome. It's Love great. the humility, Quinn. That was, that was awesome. Well. They, that was a, that was a great, great uh, conversation, discussion points, some, some heated uh, topics as well. And it's great to see how you, how you navigate it going from the, the all out at the start from now more of the nuanced view and I wanted to to give a quick shout out to everything that you do at clinical athlete so tell us what's what's new what's coming up yeah
1: thanks man um so clinicalathlete.com is uh it's the website and we we do a lot of things we have a directory on there and it's it's where clinicians can connect with athletes and athletes can connect with clinicians rather than just kind of doing a random Google search and know where I hope, you know, I hope this physio or whoever it is understands my goals. You know, it's not going to just tell me to find new hobbies, these types of things. And so we have uh, providers on the map that have a better understanding of, of athletes and performance. And we have a forum, clinical athlete forum where we discuss all things, athlete health and performance and, We've got webinars on there and courses and just like five years of discussions that are pretty awesome. Um, You know, if this ever, if this thing ever goes under, I'm keeping that damn forum. I'm just going to read through it for the rest of my life because it's got a lifetime of information, thousands of papers. And uh, we do kind of office hour mentor uh, group meetings in there, and we do uh, we phone calls with the members and just you know their students, their coaches, and their clinicians, so we have that entire kind of hub and what we like to do is just watch people evolve over time, and we said uh, like behavior change is hard but i 've seen myself included people who joined in the very very beginning years ago how their practice and their mindsets have evolved over time it 's like so cool to see what it happens over a, a process of time it 's it's just you see it, but it's years, and uh, just kind of a confirming that this stuff is not easy, but it's definitely possible to shift your mindset and probably have a little better representation of how the world works. You know, not not be stuck in your silo, but sometimes it takes a community, you know. And I've these shifts that we've talked about with myself are totally due to my interactions with with the clinical community and the in the forum and you know, the people that I've met there, it's just been great. And yeah, we do our, our, uh, seminars and our courses. When those things are up and going, we've got, you went to the powerlifting one and I teach the weightlifting one and, um, we'll hopefully have more stuff like that brewing in the future. Podcasts, all that good stuff. Awesome. And
0: the, um, also free training as well now.
1: Yeah, we've got up, we've got, yeah. And we actually, so we have an online, uh, The pain science course that's free right now, Jared Maynard's course. But we have, yeah, we just we released the home-based training program for people who don't have equipment, and we released the powerlifting program for free. And there's a Facebook group, Clinical Athlete um, Coaching Headquarters. You can just join the group and get the programs. And everybody's pushing me to to write a weightlifting one, so I'll probably do that. Uh, But it's it's a lot of fun, you know. Just in this time, just trying to provide people with some uh, some fun you know, some, some resources. There's plenty of online free programs. So that's not really the thing. It's more of the interaction and kind of the community aspect that I think people are missing right now. So hopefully we can bring that to them.
0: Absolutely. Community amongst the isolation. So I really appreciate all the work that you do Quinn and, and appreciate your time until next time.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Daniel.